John chapter 14, please. I'll read our lesson, then we can dismiss the children for children's church, John 14. Bible's in the back, reading from the ESV, English Standard Version. It's our regular version that we use here. Let me just make sure this is... Okay. John chapter 14. Verse 1 through verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also from now on. You do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Who can, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, verse 12. Truly, truly, solemnly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. We're in John 14. Children, you are dismissed for Children's Church. All right. Interesting passage of Scripture. In the Gospel according to John. A series, the invisible made visible, the eternal, the transcendent. Creator God becomes man. It's the incarnation. We sing about it. We, we sang about it today. We'll, we'll talk about it even more so as the coming weeks that we celebrate Christmas. God reveals himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what this gospel account is all about. Jesus revealing himself as the Messiah. John says that you may know him as the unique and eternal son of God so that by believing on him, you may have life in his name, chapter 20. And that's what Jesus has been doing for about three years now, publicly declaring his unique, eternal nature as the Son of God, who he is, and uh, declaring it publicly. And unfortunately, chapter 12, verse 36, tells us that his public ministry ended with the rejection of Israel as a nation. Yet people will come, Jewish people will come to know and love Jesus. But as a whole, as a nation, they reject him. And, And at that rejection, Jesus gathers 12 disciples, this new messianic community of followers, and he brings them to a room, an upper room, where he will gather with them and have his final meal. He will then be ushered out and handed over to the Jewish and Roman authorities to be crucified. The meal is a Passover meal. It is the Passover season. It is a very big celebration. Many come from all over the region to Israel, to to Jerusalem, to celebrate, remembering how God visited them in his wrath and judgment while in slavery and struck down the firstborn males, all those who did not take shelter under the blood of the substitutionary lamb was struck down, firstborn struck down as, as the angel of death passed over their home under the blood of the lamb. It's Thursday, place is packed. Jesus gathers these men as what's known as the, uh, the farewell discourse, the final tour. It goes from chapter 13 through chapter 17. In chapter 17, we have a beautiful opportunity to hear Jesus pray. It's awesome. I can't wait. John 17. In the meantime, he's in, he's in the upper room. It goes from chapter 13 all the way through the chapter 16 before the prayer. And we got five chapters of, of, of this upper room discourse that's not in any other place in Scripture. It's only in 
the gospel according to John. And John opens up, if you have your Bibles, turn to 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, this is getting to the upper room, Jesus knew his hour had come. He was going to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John says his final address was a continuation of expression of love for his disciples. Knowing he would be crucified, his departure was imminent. And we saw last week this contrast between Judas's betrayal and his, Jesus' expression of love by getting on his knees and washing the dirty feet of the disciples. This was not simply, we said two weeks ago, a humble example for them to follow, although it was. We ought to be humble and serve one another. But it is a parable. It was an acted out parable. If you look at chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus tells them that they are clean. He is anticipating the work of the cross. He's looking ahead to his execution. That would be the means by which they would receive this blood cleansing and washing power of forgiveness. Now they just need their feet washed. 1 John 1.9 says about Christians that we need to have our feet washed, that we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's talking to Christians. And then Jesus in 13.31 declares, chapter 13, verse 31, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. We know what that means. It's the cross. He is anticipating his death and burial and resurrection, and it's the hour of his death has come. And then he tells them in 1333, and I want you to follow this with me. He says, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. I'm not with you much longer. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jew, I'm telling you, where I am going, you are not coming. You cannot come. I'm leaving. You can't come with me. And then down in chapter 13, verse 36, Simon Peter, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. You will follow, but now you cannot come with me. Look at chapter 14, verse 12. says the same thing. Whoever believes in me does the work I do, greater works than these, because I'm going to the Father. I'm leaving. Chapter 14, verse 28, same thing. I'm going away. I will come to you, but I'm going away. I'm going to the Father. Listen, disciples, listen, Messianic community. I'm not going to be around much longer. I've served you. I've loved you. I've protected you. I've provided for you. I've done so much for you these past three years. It's ending feel that it wasn't how things were supposed to end what do you mean you're leaving you loved us you cared for us you provided for us and now you're telling us you're going and we're not going with you we can't come we can't go we're not going well this is not how it ends this is not how it's supposed to end added to that shock you're leaving i can't come look at look at the contrast here you have one person judas will betray him And then you have Peter, the leader of the 12, deny him. Look at the end of chapter 13, a very last verse, before we jump into this verse, our verse. He says, when the rooster will crow, Peter, listen, you think you come with me? You think you can follow me? You think you're coming my way? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I'm leaving. I'm not covering. I'm not not walking with you anymore. I'm not, you know, this this is ending and there's a betrayer among us, and there's a denier among us. The shock, the disappointment, the confusion, and in the midst of that, I want you to feel that. Jesus says, chapter 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. See that? Four things. Trust me. Jesus is saying, trust me in your fear. Trust me in your future. I know I'm going, but trust me. And trust me in your wandering. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Trust me in your witnessing, and that's where we're going to end up, in, in the glory and witnessing of Christ. So that's where we're going. Four points, four, four movements in this passage. Number one, trust me in your fears. They're afraid. Confused, disturbed, The arrest of Jesus, the denial of Jesus, the death of Christ hasn't even happened yet, and here they are afraid. Jesus will tell us uh, in John 16 that not only will they be afraid, but they will scatter. Everyone will scatter like little frightened children, and Jesus wants to start and begin to do some heart surgery on these guys who are afraid. And he tells them, let 
not your hearts be troubled. Verse 1. Look at verse 27. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, there's something interesting in that passage. If you've been following and tracking with us, the Bible says in John 11 that Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus. Mary was there. The Jews were there. He saw the tomb. He saw these people weeping, and it says that he was greatly troubled. He looked at death, he saw the trouble, he, he agitated, that's what the word means, agitated, outwardly and physically agitated. It says that he was troubled, terasso, same word here, John 11. John 12, it says, when the hour had finally come for him to be glorified, the fact of his going to the cross, drinking the cup, our wrath upon him for our sins, it says that he was troubled, deeply troubled in his soul, John 12, 27. In John 13.21, Jesus sees and contemplates and announces Judas' betrayal and it says he was troubled in his spirit. Same verb. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Stop letting your hearts be troubled. The, the verb means that they were tr- being troubled. Jesus knows that and he's telling them to stop what they had already started. I asked myself the question. Is Jesus preaching to the choir? In other words, is Jesus telling the disciples, listen, I'm troubled too. You're troubled, I'm troubled, we're all troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Kind of preaching to the choir. I don't think so. I don't think so. You see, they are not troubled because they see death and they're agitated by it. They are not troubled because they are rushing toward betrayal or he's going to be betrayed and pain and humiliation and crucifixion. They are troubled because they're confused. They are scared. And what Jesus is saying, and they are, uh, they are threatened that Jesus is leaving and leaving them alone, and they are fearful and they are troubled. He keeps talking about leaving. Well, I, I draw, here's my conclusion. There's a way in which, and this may be important for some of you, there's a way in which we can be troubled and agitated that is right, that is good, that is just, that's believing in God, trusting in God, and being troubled like Jesus, and there's also a way where you are fearful, lack of faith, lack of trust, that troubles your hearts, as it did these disciples. Jesus was troubled with complete faith in God, while the disciples were men who needed to trust God in their troubles, in their fears. He tells them, believe in God. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe, trust. That's the same way NIV has trust. Uh, believe, trust in God. Trust also, believe also in me. In other words, follow my lead. We're prone to have troubled hearts. Right? This time of season, this, this Christmas season, many of us are rejoicing and some of us are troubled. Some of us are hurting. Some of us have, have, have circumstances and disappointments in our lives this year, the last year, whenever it was, and we're troubled of hearts. We can't control the future. We can't control our circumstances. We may feel that uh, the, the fear that overcomes us, we fell somewhat in despair. Souls may have some dark places, and our hearts are troubled. There's a place in that. There's a reality in that, that our hearts are troubled because we lack faith. We lack belief. We lack trust in God. And God, if you're here today and you're like not trusting, you're not walking, you're not relying upon God, God would say, trust me in your circumstances. Trust me. Lean on me. Believe on me. And again, the NIV says trust. I'm using that word, but the ESV is believe on me. And sometimes maybe you're troubled and you know what? You're like, okay, I, I, I know you got this, God. I, all right, I'll walk in this, but I'm troubled. I, I'm believing you, but it's troubling. And that's okay. And that, that's what's happening here. That's okay. In fact, the verbs, uh, the commentators get into this. The verbs in chapter 14, verse 1, believe in God, believe also in me. Uh, some say, well, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's an imperative, and some say it's indicative. In other words, it is something that is happening, it's indicative, or it's something imperative, it's a command or an exhortation. I believe it's imperatives. I believe that what Jesus is saying is, you believe in God, keep on believing in God. Do not let your hearts be troubled, keep on believing in God, and keep on believing in me. Go in that direction, that is what you're exhorted to, to keep believing, keep trusting. And it's the pattern 
listen, it's the pattern of what Jesus himself trusted in his Father, in his life entirely, perfectly, each and every time. Peter, who's there, he's, he's hearing this, he's in the upper room, would write later on in 1 Peter 2, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself, that's Jesus, entrusting himself to God, who judges justly. Follow me. Now let's, let, let's point out the obvious here too. It is a call to have faith and belief in Jesus himself. Believe in God, believe also in me. It is one thing for the disciples to have faith in the God, the Jews, Jewish Old Testament Yahweh. It's another thing, because they're monotheistic, they worship one God. It's quite another thing to have faith in the one that's standing right in front of them. The one that was right in front of them, the one that would be betrayed, the one that would be denied, the one that would be abandoned, and the one that would be crucified. Believe also in me. It's not simple believism faith. He's talking about, a, 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 in that upper room, he's talking about something that was very, very serious. Now remember, try to put yourself there. Christ has not been crucified. He has not been dead for three days. He has not risen from the dead yet. For them it was, listen, trust me, I'm leaving, I'm going, I'm going to be crucified. You guys aren't getting all this, but you cannot go where I'm going, but I will come again. For us, maybe this morning, we're on the other side of the cross. We know about the cross, we know about the empty tomb. And maybe this morning, God would want to say to you, trust me. I love you, I love you to the end. I know the circumstances you're in. I know the world is pulling you away from me. I know that you may think you're on your own doing this by yourself. You're not. I am with you and I love you. Listen to me. Walk with me. Follow me. Let me love you. I mean, they were with him for three years, walking intimately, intimately with him. They, 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 they had every reason to trust him. So do we. So do we. Circumstances you're in. Darkness you may be approaching. Trouble that may come. Believe in God. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Trust him, family, no matter the circumstances, the difficulties. He has a divine purpose in all that he does. He is working to show forth his glory and for our spiritual good. Trust me in your fears. Then he goes on and says, trust me in your future. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, verse 2, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. The Father's house, the domain of God, heaven, which he's talking about here, and I believe he's also talking about the new heavens and the new earth. We'll get to that in a minute. In the Father's house. What's a home about? Home is about family. Home is about family. Home is about bringing where the children are raised up in. That's family. That's home. In my Father's house. In that day, a father would... His son, the father of the sons of the father would marry. They would go out from the home, they would marry, and then they would bring their bride back to the house. And the father and all his sons would then build on his home. So he would, he would build apartments or rooms onto his own home as his son would go out and bring the family to the home and, the, and it would grow more and more and more and the house would get bigger and bigger and bigger. I'm glad it's not that way today. But That's what happened in those days. And if you have a King James Bible, the Greek word is monet, and the reason why I mention that is because the, the King James translate the Latin word mansions, which means mansions. Maybe if you remember the King James. Uh, in my father's house, there are many rooms, uh, many mansions. In my father, there are many mansions. The, the King James used mansions, and it's unfortunate because that's not what it means. It's not like, man, I'm getting a big old house when I get up there. Man, I get a mansion, big house. Big bling, big, big living room. I can't wait to get to my big house because I've got many, many mansions in my father's house, right? Prosperity. That's not what it says. In antiquity, when the father's house, and they speak about the father's relationship in the home, had more to do not with the building itself, but with the relationship in the family. Dr. Carson, New Testament scholar, probably one of the brightest scholars in the New Testament that's live today, he captures the meaning, and this is what he writes. The point that Jesus is getting at is not the lavishness of each apartment, but the fact that each, excuse me, but the fact that such ample provisions has been made that there's no more than enough space. There's more than enough space 
for every one of Jesus' disciples to join him in the Father's home, end quote. It's not, the, it's not the apartment, it's the place. It is being with the Father in the Father's house. Jesus says, it's true. I'm going to my Father's place. There are rooms, there's dwelling. There's more than enough. If it were not so, he says, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Now stop for a moment. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. How does an eternal God prepare a dwelling place is like heaven's in shambles. Like there needs to be someone built. Like, does he stop at Lowe's and Home Depot on the way to heaven? That's the question. I'm going to prepare a place. It's not done yet. Bring in some two by fours. You know, I was a carpenter in this life. I know what I'm doing. I don't think so. What has not been done? What needs prep work? What needs prep work in the way into your dwelling place? I'll give you the answer. Sin has not been atoned for. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is on his way to the slaughter. The wrath of God, the condemnation of God, the curse of God is still unsatisfied until Jesus bears our curse, dies in our place, takes our condemnation and judgment upon himself, and sets us free. That prep is not done. Every obstacle between us and our room in the Father's house will be removed, will be done away with, will make a pathway and be prepared on the cross three days later. Jesus will give his life and make a way, for the cross prepares the way. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again, and I'll take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Clear reference to the second advent. The coming of Christ, where I, when I come again. So don't use this verse, and I've heard this verse used, and I probably did it myself, uh, that Jesus is taking us to heaven with him. Now, there are verses that say that. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. I'm not denying that, but this is not the verse. Here, Jesus is saying the messianic bridegroom is said first to go to prepare a place for us in his house and then come again and take us to be with him forever. It's eschatological. It is end times. It is the new heavens and the new earth and his final resting place. That's the image here. It's consummation. And notice, I love what Jesus says here. He says, if you look at that verse, he says, and where are you, verse four, and you know where, no, no, verse three, I'm sorry. I will take you to myself that where I am, you will go to the Father's house. I will take you to myself so you could be home in the Father's house. That's not what he says. That I, where I am, you may be also. You may be also. It's about the presence of God, not the place of God. You notice that? D.L. Moody, he was an evangelist, 19th century, tells a story about a mother who was sick. And some neighbors came and took the young daughter from the mother who was sick in hopes that, the mother would get well, and they took this child home with them and kept watch over them and, and took care of this young girl so the mother got better. Unfortunately, the mother passed away. And the neighbors decided that they were not going to take the child back home again until after the funeral. So after the funeral, they took the little girl and they brought her home. And what did the girl do? First thing she got home is run into the house looking for mom. Went room to room, side to side, all throughout the house, until finally she came to them and said, where is my mother? When they told her that a mother had been gone, the child wanted to go back to the neighbor's house again. Home had lost its attraction for her since her mother was not there any longer. Moody writes, it is not the jasper walls and the pearly gates that are going to make heaven attractive. It is being with God. If your primary joy of heaven is seeing people that pass before you and, and not Jesus himself, if the joy uh, and beauty and glory is the place and not the person, you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand all that Christ has done for the joy of seeing our Savior face to face. The one who rescued us from sin, death, and the hell should be on our hearts and minds first and foremost. Fanny Crosby wrote a lot of hymns in her day. In fact, she wrote a hymn that D.L. Moody tells that story, loved. It's called Saved by Grace. Saved by Grace, Fanny Crosby. This is what she writes. Someday the silver cord will break, and I no more as now shall sing. But oh, the joy when I shall awake within the palace of the king. I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. I shall see him face to face. Someday my earthly house will fall. 
I cannot tell how soon it will be, but this I know, my all in all, how now a place in heaven for me. I shall see him face to face. That's their future. Jesus tells them, I, you know, you, you kind of wonder what's going on. Jesus says to them, verse 4, you know the way where I'm going. Like, I just told you everything. You got it? Father's house, mansion, prepare, coming back, going to get everything. You know where I'm going? Good old Thomas, verse 5. Got to love Thomas. Lord, we don't know where you're going. I, I know you just told us like 35 times in the past three years, but we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? You think by now he would know? He doesn't. First one and two, I'm going to my father's mansion. At least say, well, where is the father's mansion? No, we don't even know where you're going. How are we going to get there? We don't know. We're not home yet. There's restlessness. There's, there's uncertainty about the future. We don't know where you're going. At home is a place where wandering stops, right? We're home. It's nice to be home. You're, right? you're on vacation. You're like, ah, I know everything is here. Like, this is home. But sometimes it's right in front of you, and you need to be reminded. We need to be reminded. It's right in front of you, and sometimes it just needs to be pointed out because we get lost in our direction sometimes, do we not? I am the way, the truth, and the life, he says. This week, I was at St. Peter's Hospital on Thursday, and I was visiting someone, and I got in the elevator, and I've been there a bunch of times. I get in the elevator, and there's four men in the elevator, and they're all, you know, taking their corners like it's a boxing match, and I walk in, and uh, so I turn my back on them, which is probably not a good thing to do, but anyway, I turn my back on them, and the doors close. I press two. I'm at one. I'm pressed two. I'm only going on one floor. I'm standing there, looking at my watch, doing crazy, you know, just trying to beat the time, and... I feel it stop, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. I'm like, and I, uh, I'm like, oh, the doors are open on the other side. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I, I kind of know where I'm going. I'm going on the second floor. Yeah, you got to go that way. I'm like, oh, okay. As I go out the door, the doors close, and I can hear them cracking up. <laughs> and they're going down in the, in the elevator tunnels, echoing. They're laughing. I mean, scarred me for life, really. There's no hidden doors, uh, wrong openings in our future. Trust me. Trust me in your fears. Trust me in your future. I know where you're going because, like Pastor Lou, you may be wandering around not knowing where you're going. Verse 6. We know, Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. Uh, We don't know about our future. How can we know the way? Jesus, in a very famous, very well-known passage, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. And the life. That's the positive. The way, the truth, and the life. The negative, no one comes to the Father except through me. You can circle that word I am. It's the sixth I am statement following a predicate in this book. Jesus said earlier, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Now he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Definite article pointing to the reality of who he is. I am, ego, a me meaning everlasting. It's the same, if you don't know this by now, every time Jesus says I am, it's pointing back to, uh, well, most times when Jesus says I am in, in, in John, it points back to God's self-disclosure of himself to Moses. Exodus 3, who shall I go? Who shall send me? And God tells Moses, I am. Same thing here. Self-existent and eternal. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, family, there's no way to get around this. What Jesus is saying, and, 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 and the New Testament clearly teaches, including the language that it was written in, Jesus is the way, singular and exclusive. He's the only way. Singular and exclusive. Now, I know that's hard in our culture, in our pluralistic culture, to stand on that truth because we, not we, but they teach all roads, all religions, all philosophies, all things that we believe lead to the same place. Just so you know, if you believe that, that's not Jesus' position. That's not what Jesus is saying. I am the way, the only way to God. Not one of many. I am the truth of God. Not simply teach you about him. I am the embodiment of truth. We can only know ultimate reality through knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior. Then he says, I am the life of God. Not, I, I could teach you how to life, but I am the life of God. Jesus said in John 5, but just as the Father has life in himself, even so, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. You see, the human race 
is fallen. We're, we're sinful. We're, the entire race is under the curse of death and eternal death and separation from God. And Jesus is saying, I'm the only one that can give you life. I'm the only one that can give you eternal life. And, and this exclusivity of Christ can be a stumbling block for many people. If God were to crucify his son and bear our wrath and pour out our judgment and condemnation on him, as one of many roads, I would say that would be cruel. Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. And he verifies that reality in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection, and even in his ascension. Now, I know that's countercultural. And we don't scorn people that believe that we love them. We don't want to be arrogant. I said this to the first service we don't want to be arrogant unloving we got it all together we recognize that we understand that truth by the grace of God by the grace of God is the gift of God please do not be arrogant and do not take pride in your salvation be humble and love people and point people to Christ and love them well and love them but love them truthfully on what Jesus is saying is the way the truth and the life Leon Morris writes in his commentary, the way truth and life have all, all have relevance. This triple expression emphasizes many-sidedness of saving work. Way speaks of connection between two people and things. Here's the link between God and sinners. Truth reminds us of complete, the complete reliability of Jesus and all that he does and all that he is. And life stresses the fact that mere physical existence matters little. The only life worth living is that which Jesus brings, for he is life itself, end quote. So what keeps us from the way, the truth, and the life? Maybe you're this morning, you haven't, you haven't fully committed to Christ. You're not, not really totally understanding this or not recognizing who he is as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let me give you three things that keep us from the way, the truth, and the life from the text. Number one, defiance. Defiance. I am the way. We defy that. In fact, there's a song well written that you know that talks about the way and the road that leads to hell. And his name is Frank Sinatra. You know the song? And so I face the final curtain, my friend. I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life of fullness. I've traveled each and every highway and more and much more than this. Yes, I did it my way. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway and more. Much more than this, I did it my way. Unfortunately for Frank Sinatra, Proverbs 16.25 says, There's a way that seems right to a man. And his end is the way to death. Defiance. Then deception. Not only the way, but the truth. I know the truth. You can't tell me what truth is. There is no, there is no absolute truth anymore. Okay. That's what you think. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says that when the good news is proclaimed and preached, and you don't see it, and you don't hear it, and you are not recognizing it, it's veiled because you're perishing because the God of this world, the enemy, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, of the glory and calculable worth of Christ, who is the image of God. Some of us need our brains washed. I know it's negative because you see all these cult leaders, but some of us need to get our brainwashed that he's the way, he's the truth. I don't have the corner on truth. And he's also the life. So there is defiance, there is deception, and finally there is disdain. Don't tell me I need a life. Don't tell me that Jesus is the life. Don't tell me that Jesus is the only way, the only life that there is, that that's the only way that I can have life in myself, that Jesus, is, well, that's what he's saying. You can read your horoscopes, you can look at your rocks, you can do all those spiritual things, they're not getting you there. Jesus is the only one. And Jesus is not saying, and family, you need to hear this, Jesus is not saying, come and understand my teaching, and then you can understand the path to which to go, or come and understand what I'm saying, learn some truth and enlightenment, and then you can follow the path of life. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I am the truth, the way, and the life. Look at verse 7. He, he kinda, this is what it's all about. We, we like verse 6, and I do. But look at verse 7. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Verse 7. If you had known me, you have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So I'm the way, the truth, and life, and now you know the Father. 
I'm the only way to know the Father is to know me, to come through me. And by seeing me, by knowing me, by loving me, by trusting in me, by believing in me, you see and you know the Father. So my, your connection to the Father, to God, is only through me. And he promises intimacy in a relationship with Christ, to know the Father as well. That's what he's saying. So, do you want God as your judge or do you want God as your father? If you want God as your father who loves you and cares for you, forgives you and receives you, you come through the son. I'm the only one, he says, that can turn this relationship around from fear and uncertainty to absolute confidence and warmth and love. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm the only way. Thomas Kempis writes, Follow thou me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way, thou must follow me. The truth, which thou must believe. The life, for which thou must hope. I am the invaluable, secure way. The infallible truth. The never-ending life. I am the straightest path. The sovereign truth. Life, true. Life, blessed. Life, created. End quote. Verse 8. Look at verse 8. Philip said, all right, all this talk about you and the Father and the oneness, I get it, okay, show us the Father. That's enough, just show us that. You keep talking about it, let me see him. Like Moses, you know, let me see your glory. Uh, let, me, let me just see him. If you show me him, I'll understand. Verse nine, Jesus said, how long, and you could almost, almost I, I don't know this for sure, but I can almost hear Jesus saying, have I been with you so long? I don't think a sigh is sinful, Okay. How have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? What kind of disappointment. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? Right? We don't want to judge because I, I, I do a lot of sighing. I don't get it all so quickly either. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say that to me, Peter, uh, Philip? Show us the Father. How can you say that? Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So he gives a question and he gets a question. Jesus said, do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? And here we go again, the theme of, of this oneness, this unity, this, this, this uh, union of the Father and the Son, and the Son and the Father, this perfect first-hand revelation of God. Now, I just want to say something here before we move on. The union of Christ and the Father and the Son and the indwelling that Jesus talks about, I'm the Father, the Father's in me, uh, it, it, there's, a, there's this mutual dwelling, describes unity and union, but it does not eliminate, now listen, it does not eliminate uniqueness and the personhood of God. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father sent the Son into the world. The Son didn't send the Father. The Father sent the Son. The Son did not, the Son died on the cross. The Father did not. You have distinct persons in one God. That's, we're going to talk a lot about the Trinity. Chapters 14, 15, and 16 talk a lot about the Trinity. So we're going to do a lot of study on that over the next few weeks. It's not teaching modalism, which is a heresy taught by United Pentecostal Church, United Apostolic Churches, that God is one being, one person, and he shows himself in different modes. He's in the Father's in this. That's not what Christianity, that's not orthodoxy. One God, three persons distinct, co-equal, co-eternal, very important. And by the good providence of God, yesterday I saw online that the movie The Shack is coming out. Let me say it clear. Let me be really clear and succinct as I possibly can. If you're seeking God and trying to figure out the Trinity, because that's what it's about, trying to figure out the Trinity, in the words of the late Chuck Colson, stay out of the shack. Stay out of the shack. It is so bad, so wrong, so dishonoring, and absolutely despicable when it comes to the things of God. So if you want to know what I think about the movie, just ask me. It's not simply an analogy. He gets a letter from God, and he goes speaks to the Trinity. And Christians are like, oh, we finally know what the Trinity is all about. No, you don't. Only here. We're going to learn about it a lot. And this is perfect timing. I didn't do it. I had nothing to do with the movie, but this is perfect timing. Couldn't get any better than that. So we're going to hear about the Trinity. We're going to know about the Father, Son, and Spirit a lot over the next couple of weeks. And Jesus will answer his own question. And he will say, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. But they're distinct. And we'll see that. And he says, and he points to the, the reality of this unity and this union through three things. Well, through two things. His words and his works. All right? So let's close with that. Let's close with this. 
So trust me in your fears. Trust me in your future. Trust me while you're wandering around because I am the way, the truth, and the life. And trust me in your witness. And you'll understand what I'm talking about in a moment. Verse 10b. The words that I say to you, so how do you know I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, plural, to all of you, I do not speak on my own authority. The words I speak, not on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Okay, we're not talking about modalism. Again, there's a, there's a distinctiveness, but there's a unity. And Jesus is saying, I didn't make stuff up. It's not like it's my own teaching. It is what came directly from the Father. John eight twenty eight. When you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. Okay? Jesus is not proclaiming that He is getting revelation as the other prophets, the apostles, and other people of the New Testament and Old Testament. That is not what Jesus is saying. Hebrews chapter 1 makes it clear. It says, long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, in whom he appointed to heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. In other words, God spoke these different ways through these different means. But it says, literally, he spoke in the last days by son. Jesus is the clear and perfect revelation of God. In fact, Hebrews goes on to say, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and upholds the universe by the word, the word of his power. That's the word that Jesus is talking about. Direct revelation from God in eternity past to eternity future with God. That's what he's talking about. Now, secondly... It's the works of God. So I want to get right into this. We don't have much time, but I want to hit this. The words of God, you know I'm in the Father, the Father's in me because the words out of which I say. Now look at the works. Verse 11. Now f- watch this and follow with me, okay? Verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Stop right there. Very important. It says, whoever believes in me will do the work I do. Some commentators run from that, and they say, whoever just means the apostles in the 12, and we see the apostolic authority and ministry of the apostles, although they didn't do all the works that Jesus did. But we see that in the apostles. The word whoever in that passage is talking to you and me as well. Whoever, not the 12, not the 11, not the apostolic age, whoever believes, if you're a follower of Jesus, in me will also do the works that I do. Hmm. If you're talking about the works of the miracles in John, blind man, from birth, walking on water, feeding 5,000 men alone, never mind women and children, with small pieces of food, raising Lazarus from the dead, turning water into wine. Some of you hope you get that. Really? Whoever. Whoever. And then he goes on to say, look, Jesus adds to that. Whoever... Believes in me, will do the works, and then says, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Okay, wait a minute. Greater than that? The word greater can mean either in quality or quantity, first of all. More spectacular, more supernatural, like raising the dead after six days. You did four, I'm doing six. Feeding a million people with five loaves. You know anybody has done that? Did you not cook for Thanksgiving and just open the fridge and it was all there? I don't know anybody. Never mind whoever believes in me. I don't know anybody has done that. Two things to understand, I think, as we could grasp at this passage. Two things. Number one, Jesus' followers, us included, were in the position to influence a greater number of people to spread over a much larger and greater geographical area. Pentecost comes, 3,000 are added, filled with the Spirit, and bam, into the world. 
Jesus was in Jerusalem, excuse me, Israel most of the part. Stepped outside a little bit, but was in a geographic area very small. When the Spirit of God comes, we're going to talk about that, he infuses and empowers and fills, and he sends people into the world. We see greater in, 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 in not in miraculous, but greater in, in, in influence, graphic area, extent. It's not qualitative, it's quantitative. Greater in number. So as I thought about that, I'm thinking, okay, well, it says because I'm going to the Father. We know that Jesus is going to the Father so we can send the Holy Spirit. You can do greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. He, 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 he qualifies his statement. I'm leaving the Spirit's coming, really. But still, but still, even if it was greater in number, it still says whoever does these things. Whoever believes in me, the work I do, greater work, even if it's in number, it's still the work Jesus did. Is that what he means? If that's the case, there's not a Christian among us. Whoever believes in me will do the works I do. All the things I did in John, you will do. There's no Christians. Like Jesus left and there's no one left. I mean, if you take it literally, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. So follow me. Verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else what? Believe, trust, come to know on account of the works themselves. If you don't believe me, look at what I'm doing and what I'm doing is pointing to the reality that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. I am God man who came to die for sins. What I do points to that, verse 11. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the what? Father may be glorified in the Son. If you're asking anything in my name, we'll talk about that next week, I will do it. So here's my conclusion. I conclude that the works and the words that Jesus did were for a specific purpose and reason. To reveal the Father for the purpose of the glory of God and for the gospel. In fact, we know that God lives for his own glory. God exists, I should say, for his own glory. And the Father and the Son live, and the Son glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son. That is the first chief aim of man. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, As children of God, whatever you do, eat or drink, do it all what? For the glory of God. Matthew 5, Let your light shine so that may see your good works and give glory to God. Give glory to the Father who's in heaven. 1 Peter 2, Keep your conducts among the Gentiles, giving glory. He says, give, no, no, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak about you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, your good works, and glorify God. Okay, let me wrap this around for you, and we'll close. The works Jesus is talking about are the works that point people to the truth, the way, and the life, and have faith in God. If you're a believer, in fact, all believers, whosoever believe, who belongs to Jesus, will live a life of glorifying, proclaiming in words and works the beauty, the majesty, the incalculable worth of Christ in the gospel. That's the work. That's what Jesus did, and that's what he pointed to, that reality, and that's what we are to live for. That's so whoever believes in him will do that work of witnessing and sharing and declaring and demonstrating the glory of God in the gospel. John Piper writes, we can say with confidence that John 14, 12, Jesus means that all believers will be marked by this. They will be so united to Christ that they will carry on his work by his power and do the kinds of things that will bear witness about Jesus. They will point people to Jesus and through Jesus to the Father, end quote. Jesus is about to go to the Father. He's leaving them. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. He's about to be glorified and he will bring his glory down and his disciples will be caught up in his glory, a finite glory, but nevertheless, and he will, and we will make him known to the world. And the glory of the cross, the glory of the gospel, the majesty of the exalted son doesn't change when he goes to the Father. It is now given to us as witnesses to the glory and majesty of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The works that we do, not for salvation, Because of our salvation, the love we show to others, the declaration of the gospel we show to others is to bring him glory and to point people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. All of us are included in that if you belong to Jesus. The Jews said to him in chapter 10, how long are we going to keep us in suspense, Lord? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? You know what? Tell us plainly. You know what Jesus said? I told you, you still don't believe. You still don't trust. 
The works that I do in my Father's name, what? Bear witness about me. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus gathers his disciples and says, listen, at the end of his, of his resurrected, when he rose from the dead, he told his disciples, go to Jerusalem, wait for power. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus, on moments before his ascension, he tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. When that power and that Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, if Jesus is talking simply about the works of miracles and not to the fact of what it points to, we're in trouble. But if he's pointing to the work in a sense of the love and mercy and kindness and, and sweetness and generosity of God's children and the words by proclaiming, come to Jesus, love Jesus, repent of your sin and come to Jesus, I see we're all in on that. Point to Christ, that's the point. And this table is exactly that. We celebrate it on a monthly basis, sometimes bi-weekly. The bread is his body that was broken for you on the cross. The blood, the, the cup is the blood that was shed for you. Without the forgiveness, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Have you ever trusted Christ? This table here represents what he's done for you and, and promises the future for you and says that he is the way, the truth, and the life and no man comes to him but by him and that's not the cross. He has prepared a way, do you know that? If you know that and you belong to Jesus, he is your way, truth, and life. And you have a relationship with the Father through him. Come. The band's going to play. We're going to confess our sins. The whole church is going to repent of sins. Uh, If you don't know what sins to repent from, ask the one you came with. They'll tell you. And then we're going to come and we're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to take the bread that represents his body, take the cup that represents his blood, and we'll take communion together because we're celebrating the good news of Jesus. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. If you don't belong to Christ and you're still here and you're still wondering, we love you. We're glad you're here. We want to talk to you. We want to be in fellowship. We want, to have, we want to have communion with you in a sense of just talking with you and getting to know you. The table's just for Christians. Who are you trusting in? For your future, in your fears, in your wandering, and in your witnessing. Father, we want to trust in you today. We, we want to lay our fears down. And we recognize that our hearts can be troubled even with trusting in you. Uh, but Lord, I think many times our hearts are troubled because we're not trusting in you. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to repent of that sin. And Father, we, we, we rest in the future that you have prepared for, before us. The cross, the empty tomb, the resurrection from the dead brings us into an intimate union relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Speak to us today, Lord God, we pray. And help us, Father, to recognize who you are and to rejoice in you, especially this Christmas season. But most of all, Lord, please empower your people who believe in you to do the works that you've called us to do. Yes, we are saved by the great gift you've given us, but help us to be filled with love that we may lovingly demonstrate others who you are and declare the good news of Jesus to turn from sin and believe on him, we pray.